Take the guesswork out of your cannabis shopping with ECS DNA Kit by Endo Canna Health. I did this years ago and it continues to empower me to get nerdy with my cannabis choices, which you know I like. If you've watched our Cannabis Legalization News podcast, did you know that right now you can save 25% off your DNA test at endodna.com? That's E-N-D-O-D-N-A.com and use promo code POD25. That is P-O-D, the number two, the number five. Your purchase includes the EndoDNA Collection Kit. Endo Decoded Report, Personalized Cannabinoid and Terpene Suggestion, Endo Aligned Product Matching in Your State, Suggested Dosage Guidelines, and Optimum Methods of Administration. Once you know your personal ECS data, you can shop Endo supplements tailored specifically for you. And right now, Endo DNA is celebrating their new patent with a BOGO offer on their Afeca Soft Gels lineup. Since so many of you struggle with sleep, I want to highlight Afeca Unwind created to support healthy sleep cycles using a patented proprietary formula of hemp-derived CBD, terpenes, and essential oils. If sleep is eluding you, sweet dreams are made of this. So buy one, get one, my friend. You can shop online at endodna.com. And don't forget promo code POD25 at checkout to save 25% on your DNA test kit. All right, man. Well, uh, thanks for joining us. My name is Tom Howard. I'm a cannabis lawyer, and this is my YouTube channel. Today, we have a really cool feature for you all. We're going to talk about compliance and one of the ways that we might be able to help marijuana businesses expand and stay more compliant. As you know, just because legalization is happening doesn't mean that it's going to be unfettered. And so with me today is the CEO. Are you also the founder? Uh, yes, I am. CEO and founder of Adherence Compliance Software, Steve Owens. Steve, uh, how you doing? Uh, doing well, sir. How are you today? Oh, man, I'm uh, doing pretty good. I've been looking at this, and uh, as a, a lawyer who represents a lot of financial institutions, uh, I, I'm looking at it, and I'm like, well, this is, this is really going to help, especially considering uh, with banking, you have to be very careful with unsafe and unsound practices. One of the... Uh, views or one of these videos that we just recently did has to do with the laws that were just filed in uh, the state of Illinois on Friday, the 23rd of February, explicitly saying that it is not an unsafe or unsound banking practice to provide accounts to legitimate cannabis related businesses. And how are, does adherence compliance uh, help with that? Oh, yeah, great question. And so uh, we've been working with banks in the in the cannabis industry since 2015. Um, our first one in here in Colorado that we cut our teeth on um, essentially was setting up a program. Um, they expanded too fast, took on too many accounts, and the regulators came in um, and shut their program down. Whoa! Shut and, down. Uh, have yeah. you noticed? Have you noticed a rapid growth? That's something that I hear a lot in the cannabis industry. Is that? Are you witnessing rapid growth and it being like a legitimate problem for some businesses? Uh, absolutely. Uh, it's difficult in, in most industries, in mar markets to get accounts um, in, gosh, in uh, California. Uh, it's very mm -hmm. difficult to get a bank account because of the uh, dictation that they have there from the California Bankers Association. Oh. Um, but yes, I mean, it, it's, it is a challenge. Um, if I had to run my business or you had to run your business without a bank account and without a debit card. Oh, and, man. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. the Wild West. You have a, a legitimate safe made of metal full of dollar bills. I mean, I don't. And then with the volumes of the business that you see in cannabis as well. Uh, now, mm -hmm. uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Can you give me some of the backstory about why can't you use a credit card to buy cannabis when you go to the dispensary? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, so the credit card companies, uh, MasterCard, mm -hmm. Visa, uh, have put out a statement and basically the credit cards are not allowed to be used for uh, cannabis transactions uh, because it's still right. a federal issue. Um, and so when we work with banks and things of that nature, um, you know, setting up account an operational account, uh, right. check cashing services, basic ACH, things like that, but yeah. uh, no debit card, no credit cards, um, you know, anything of that nature in the, in the United States, it's a little different in Canada. Um, well, in, in Canada, it's fully legal now, right? In Canada, isn't it? Uh, that's that's one of the reasons why you're able to buy Tilray on uh, the Nasdaq is because in Canada, uh, all of that or canopy brands 
in Canada, those stocks are only being sell, selling cannabis in Canada. So uh, how is it uh, different in Canada than it is in you know, uh, Colorado, let's say? Obviously, yeah. I mean, the federal issue, uh, it's, it's available uh, there. But if, when we look at the cannabis business mm-hmm. and an intensive cash business, we have been classified similar as high risk. So these are high risk deposits. Right. And normally a financial institution is only to go, able to go up to about 10% of total deposits um, in high-risk deposits. And so mm-hmm. when we're looking at things like that, it's the same standards across uh, in Canada, et cetera. And so if they're going to bank cannabis, they have to have a program in place. Are they going to do on-site monitoring? Are they going to have somebody like us go out there and do a cannabis compliance inspection to determine if this business is compliant? Because at the end of the day, the bank is taking on the risk one bad apple Right. bushel. Uh, and so for us, it's really about doing that due diligence up front. It's a lower level of due diligence in Canada. Mm-hmm. But essentially, they need to uh, perform that type of you know compliance inspections to make sure that they're financially uh, set. And then also looking for inventory diversion and public safety. Um, it's still an issue when it comes to uh, those factors. Inventory diversion. Interesting that you would mention that. We discussed earlier uh, and you know before we get to the, the charts and graphs that you have, uh, Illinois is scoring higher on the compliance scale that you've developed than other states. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm going to go ahead and uh, I'll flip over into that um, document here. And so um, I'll go ahead and open up this one. All right. And so, yeah, if we look at um, Illinois, uh, I'll just scroll down here in in one of our recent uh, documentations that we've done here. But if we look at um, this information here, and it's a little bit dated. Uh, We have some recent information that's being published now. Uh, but this kind of gives us a snapshot of cannabis compliance when we look at markets. And if we look at Illinois and we look at Maryland, uh, specifically Illinois, uh, the level of compliance there uh, coming into the industry, Illinois didn't have a quasi-legal caregivers market mm-hmm. uh, with patients. California, Washington, and Colorado did. Um, and so you have somebody who's been running an established business with no requirements whatsoever. Uh, no, no requirements whatsoever. I mean, that was... They're growing cash, and they're growing it in the backyard. And back in the day, they weren't doing CTRs, currency transaction reports, Form 8300s. They're not 280E compliant, um, et cetera. And so you're you're using some 280E compliant CRT, TPS reports. Um, uh, Those terms, what types of terms of art are those? Yeah, so if we're looking at um, a cannabis business in Colorado or in Illinois, uh, in the United States, needs to be 280E compliant. Uh, 280E is um, a business like uh, yours or mine. We can write off cost of goods sold and, and, and certain expense certain items. Right. Uh, cannabis businesses aren't allowed to do that. Well, uh, hang on. I do a lot of this stuff on the 280E. And COGS, COGS was what the delimiting factor was because they, Congress was worried about a constitutional challenge if they uh, prohibited the COGS aspect of it, the cost of goods sold. So you're still to, allowed to deduct the cost of goods sold. You are not allowed to deduct the cost of going and carrying on that business in the trafficking. So like your right. rents and all those types of things, your employees, all the other expenses that you would usually be able to uh, take off the top as opposed to, you know, our businesses with here in you know, a law firm, there's very little cost of goods sold because well, it's services. But if I was selling cannabis and I couldn't deduct the cost of goods sold, they were they feared a constitutional challenge on it. But yes, uh, I geek out enough. Let's turn our attention back to the uh, average cannabis compliance scores by state. Did you create uh, this this uh, algorithm for uh, you know giving the score? How do you compute this uh, cannabis compliance score? Yes. So for scoring, it goes through our algorithm. Um, each question behind the scenes, uh, we, you know, if we look at uh, the state of Illinois, uh, we're looking for any city, any county, any state, and then also federal requirements. Even though these businesses aren't federally supported, they do have an EIN. They must be compliant with IRS, Department of Agriculture, Department of Labor, mm-hmm. etc. And so four yeah. layers, four layers of compliance you do. Yeah, absolutely. And then we're jurisdiction based, right? So as soon as you enter in the address and if it's uh, located in, uh, you know, Chicago, Cook County, state of Illinois, and then the, and then the federal requirements, and then it's also based on your license type, right? And so a dispensary doesn't have the same compliance requirements as a cultivation center or manufacturer distributor. Um, uh, I, could you please explain to me that? Because uh, I am in Illinois. And so, you know, I, 
I'm with you when you say, yeah, when they came into effect, and I could understand why Illinois would have a higher compliance score because there was no uh, quasi legal market. But in Illinois, all we really have are medical cultivation, medical dispensary. Right. Medical manufacturer, if medical manufacturer is edibles, what does the manufacturer mean in this uh, compliance score by state? Yeah, I mean, if you look at this, there's an asterisk down there, um, basically, and then uh, manufacturers and cultivators are a similar license type in Illinois, right? And so we have dispensaries, and then we have cultivator manufacturers or producers, if you will. So for that, that you can see that the scores are the same, and there's a little asterisk by it. But um, yes, and so a question for a medical dispensary on um, you know point of sale uh, inventory requirements, it might not be the same as a manufacturing requirement. Um, same thing with um, a manufacturer is going to have good manufacturing processes, GMPs, mm-hmm. uh, equipment, um, verification, compliance requirements, et cetera. Um, and then a different staff of employees, different training level, right? You might have to have, you'd have to have food service certificates, safe service certificates um, and things like that. And, and the, cause that was one of the things that I just got done doing a blog post about compliance so you, your software actually takes into consideration like health inspector requirements if you're making uh, gummies? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Wow. We, if you look at the city requirements, um, you know, for... City health inspector always gets involved. Yeah. I mean, we're looking at uh, Department of Public Health, right? And so the, the mm-hmm. public health and safety at yep. the local level. If you get to the county level, you're including, you know, Department of Agriculture sometimes and things like that. Um, and so, yes, I mean... We are looking at compliance on if I was going to do compliance for a software company and an entity, I would find out all the regulatory code sets, right? The reg tech right. is involved. And then basically we have a process where we go through and codify that. It goes through our algorithm processing. And then we create these question lists in our software, which I can show you here in a few minutes. Cool. And yeah, we're going through and answering these questions. And so when I show up in Illinois um, and do dispensary inspections there, mm-hmm. we're much, much, much higher. The level of compliance is a 9.5, right? Comparatively to Colorado, when I come here and we score an 84. Um, you know, people think Colorado is a very compliant market. It's not because there's 3,500 licenses and there's only 150 inspectors. They kind of broke up over that. So you said there was 3,500 licenses and how many inspectors? Roughly 150. All right. So uh, they're overworked and understaffed, huh? If you have two, they always go in pairs, right? Because corroboration when you do. uh, We don't trust the employees, so they have to send two of them. Exactly. And so if I see an illegal activity, they have corroboration. And so, and then they're most of the. Uh, Corroboration for legal activities. Great. I like the law enforcement bent. No, exactly. And so um, they, they do that type of process. And then if you look at them, um, you know, you, you're going to have 160 licenses per pair. Okay. You know, if you do the math. And so they focus in Colorado on pesticides, on inventory when the reporting comes up and shows them that there might not be reconciliation problems or um, sales, daily sales uploaded, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, they focus on the common areas like that. Uh, Colorado still using um, clipboards, paper and file cabinets. Well, those are infallible, right? I mean, like... There's no state right now that's doing automated compliance at all. Um, so That's, that's and, interesting. Now, that's uh, going forward, the future is usually in the future. Uh, how long have you been developing this software, and is it growing? You know, Give us a, a backstory and maybe start walking us through uh, how it works. Yeah, sure. And so what I could do is um, I'll switch the screen over to the... Uh, software here. But um, yeah, so we started uh, Adherence Colorado was the original company back in 2014 uh, here in Colorado. Uh, Uh, What year did you guys, uh, did you, was it 2016 that you guys went adult use? And then also uh, how long have you guys had medical? Yeah, it's 2014 was adult use and then medical was 2009. And so if you meet some of the original cannabis folks um, back in the day. Uh, yeah, they got their licenses back in 2009. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. And so the, we had a medical market here that was quasi-regulated. Mm-hmm. And in 2012, they put out a pretty decent set of re- medical regulations. In 2014, they brought on REC. Um, and then they basically doubled that regulatory set. And so if we look at the state of Colorado, there's 250 pages for medical um, cannabis. Oh. And so you're asking a caregiver to go out and read 
250 pages of regulatory code and interpret and understand those, and apply those to their business. They simply yeah. don't do it. So that's why we have our automated software uh, that goes through the whole process. Because if, if without the automation part, this is a rat's nest that um, you can't solve. And that's why we're working with cities and counties that use our software and banks that mm-hmm. use our software as well. Well, it would uh, just for my software, my limited software background, that would help. I mean, you need the users to find out where the uh, the patches are and then also how to enhance it. Right. No, absolutely. And so I'm going to go ahead and open the software here really quickly. Um, log in. I'll go ahead and delete this inspection. And I'll just pull you up as an example, um, a Colorado business that we have. Cool. Uh, that we have here for Canada business. It's a tablet. Uh, you have uh, an app. So you can run it just from your smartphone or from your tablet? Uh, yeah, you need an iPad. Uh, we're only on iPads um, at this point. And so, um, yeah, and so it, in, in the iPad that we have, um, it's available on the Apple App Store. And so that's cool. how we distribute our software. Uh, we're on version 4.6 right now. Um, and I've got my demo account set up here. But uh, yes, and so our clients, whether it's a city and county code enforcement officer in California in the Bay Area that's getting ready to go out and inspect cultivation centers and retailers, uh, you know, they would download all data in our software to make sure they have the latest regulatory code set and off Ooh. they go. And then they answer questions. And so we go through the software and we answer yes or no. General applicability, you understand that, severability and stuff like mm-hmm. that. These are things that the licensee needs to know. Uh, but then we're down to the licensing questions. These cannabis owners are very, very familiar. Um, if we see something that's annotated here with City of Boulder, um, mm-hmm. that's City of Boulder requirement, right? And as we scroll down, we'll see County of Boulder uh, but Boulder, Colorado really gave me the vision early on because they had 80 pages of code at the city level, 40 pages at the county level, 200 plus at the state level. And then we have federal when we look at all the different federal agencies, OSHA, et cetera. And so I had a friend who was a owned a couple of dispensaries and he basically said, what would you do to solve this problem? And I said, you know, it, it needs to be codified and put into an easy to use app. So um, somebody could walk through your business and do an inspection. What year was this? This is 2014. And so um, I went out and started knocking on doors here in Denver, Colorado. Um, Where you're headquartered? I mean, you just were talking about Boulder. Yeah. So um, I'm based in Denver. Uh, We're headquartered in uh, Menlo Park, California. Um, Yeah. And then so and then we're a we're a new uh, Delaware corporation. Uh, We are reorganized. Delaware. Yeah. You're in Delaware. We're a Delaware C Corp with a headquarters in uh, California. Um, obviously, as we expand, I started off as Adherence Colorado, and now we're Adherence Compliance Inc. And so we're um, obviously maturing as the market matures, if that makes sense. It, it does, really. It, it actually does. Yeah. Uh, so we're in version four. You keep expanding. Right. And uh, you have it programmed so that you're making sure that you're complying with all the levels of the government. Absolutely. And so um, as you go through the software, uh, you're entering in notes and photos and am I compliant? And, you know, yes is good. No is is bad. Uh, But as we look through that, I mean, are all the video recordings stored in a limited access area that's only accessible by management staff? Most states, you have to have it in a locked room. The key can't be in the lock, et cetera. Uh, They have to have a security and surveillance log. Uh, They have to have a log that basically says who can access the system itself. And so it's an approval log to go into it. If, if we if we look at that compliance, a, a cannabis owner has business running day to day. Are they thinking about 300 floating compliance points? Because if we look at this, this is Boulder, Colorado. It's pretty intensive. Um, as we go. before they focus on their business, I mean, I think that's really the huge value add that you provide with right. how compliant you need to stay in that. Because are you getting any traction from banks? That are like, okay, well, if if the as a requirement of getting access to your accounts, you have to use a, a software like automated, uh, let's see, what is it, adherence compliance. Right, right. So if you, uh, let's take the state of Maryland as an example. Um, and so there's currently three financial institutions, uh, banks slash credit unions um, that are providing um, services to the cannabis industry, uh, operational accounts. Uh, we're working with one bank to create a loan uh, process and everything like that. And so all three of these banks in Maryland have went through the adherence compliance banking program. Um, I'll go ahead and uh, share this uh, really quickly, which is the other one. So how to bank cannabis. So we wrote a white paper 
on how to bank cannabis. Um, and we have a program um, that essentially outlines, it's a five-step program, and I can kind of scroll down here a little bit to the... Yeah, you sent me a copy of that white paper. It was good. It was a lot of the issues that I have to talk to my clients about when it comes to the problems that they're going to face. And sometimes it just... They're, they're less likely to do it simply because it's too much, too daunting. And also it's not unsafe. It's unsafe and not sound until that new law passes. But uh, how did it uh, start approaching? Well, how does it start improving uh, the bank's uh, requirements that they would have with uh, specifically the federal guidance that uh, has been issued uh, by the, you know, the previous administration? It just hasn't necessarily been overruled by the current one. Yeah, well, I mean, Maryland's a great example. And so we didn't have clarity on a few items, um, specifically uh, the deposits, making sure that deposits were sent through the Fed. And so the deposits go through the Fed. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also uh, in Maryland, um, a BSA analyst needs to be on site when you're doing the inspection. And so in Maryland, that's the guidance we got from the Fed in Virginia. And so uh, really... So they can hire us to go out there and they can piggyback with us and watch us do an inspection. Or in Maryland, what we do is we train them. We train the high risk BSA Banking Secrecy Act analysts to do the work that we do. And right. So- but I mean, if you're training the high cl- This guy would be like an employee of FinCEN or like Department of Treasury, I'm assuming then? Uh, no, they're, they're, they're an employee of the bank or the credit oh. union. Right? I, it's the officer in the bank that reports to the federal government. No, reports to the president, um, reports to the bank. But what what the what the Fed gave guidance on is that they needed if the bank is going to do an inspection, they need a representative on site during the inspection to prove that the inspection is occurring. Right. And so they have to physically be present on site. And so in our first inspections we did in Maryland, I was doing the inspections as we're teaching them. And then we teach them to go through this five step program. How do we bank cannabis? Uh, credit unions in California right now are very interested in this because of the money mm-hmm. that's there. And they're, you know, they can charge higher rates for application processing. They also can charge um, basis points on deposits, et cetera. And so if we look at that, what is, what is a, a framework to go through? And so we came up with a five-step program uh, that we basically give away, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's backed by a three-day training course that we have. Um, so we fly to the banks or the credit union's location um, and train their staff. What is the cannabis industry? How do, the, how do the business structures and setup work? What's the difference between the license type of the dispensary, a cultivation center, a manufacturer, distributor? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we go through failure patterns. So we've, been, we've done thousands of inspections with our software, and so we know exactly where dispensaries, cultivators, and manufacturers fail. And, so, and then application processing. We provide a template of 40-some documents that these guys can request of the cannabis operations, the CRBs, as we call them, the cannabis-related businesses, up front. And then they screen that, go through a process. CRB term. Who came up with that? Is that your term? You guys make that up? Which one? Sorry. Uh, CRBs. Uh, yeah, cannabis-related business. It used to be MRBs was a, a classic way to say uh, marijuana-related businesses was the way that the Fed uh, talks about um, them. If we look at the FinCEN guidance up here, they talk about MRBs, right, these marijuana businesses right? Uh, and how many banks are doing it. But, um, you know, yes. And so for the CRBs, um, do you want to onboard them? What do we require up front? So, you know, it was things like three years of tax record. We want a copy of the state license. Um, we do a background check quickly to make sure that they're okay on um, administrative issues uh, as well, because um, if they've had any citations or violations at the city, county, state, or federal level, we want to know um, because that's part of the process of screening. If they go through and they actually are accepted, after they do their application fee, uh, then we do account setup and reporting. And so that's where we do the initial uh, suspicious activity report to identify that as a cannabis account. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I do have a question. Sure. Uh, so when you say after they are accepted, uh, who is they? Is that the CRB? Yeah, the cannabis business. Okay. Yeah. yeah, the cannabis operator, I'll just call them. Yeah. So after the operators are accepted, um, then we go through setup and reporting. Um, and so that's where we're doing the process. Um, it, it's a multi-step process, but they have to screen against current accounts to make sure they don't have any cannabis-related businesses in their non-cannabis program. Does that make sense? So the bank would have to screen all 5,000 accounts, operational accounts that it has to make sure that none of those are cannabis-related businesses. That makes sense? Yeah, it does make sense because you there's SARS that you have to comply with for right. the ERBs, and you want to make sure that you've 
And then also you, you mentioned the 10% risk assets that you're going to uh, go up against. So you want to make sure that you always have the appropriate ratio and have isolated CRVs. Absolutely. No, no. And so we're, in following that process, we want to make sure that these guys are set up and then so we don't want to uh, we don't want to have thirty cannabis identified accounts, and then we find out we had six that were non identified, right? And so you hit the nail on the head there. We want to basically do identification, and so we help our um, you know, banking partners and credit unions do that. The routine compliance monitoring that's our software, and so we either go in and do the inspection on the bank's behalf. They get the detailed compliance report, which I can review with you as well. But because, uh, this would be policing the collateral, then is what it kind of sounds like. Because you've banked this business and you want to make sure that that business is still good. Right. And so unless you're doing routine compliance monitoring and you're, you have to go on site um, and what we've found and, and nothing against the operators out there in the industry, but they take shortcuts. Uh, they, they take, take shortcuts. It's Yeah. And so as a bank, we don't want that. And so we have the software to do the routine inspections. And so we can go in there. Um, they can outsource it to us uh, to, in certain markets or in markets like Maryland. We train the inspectors, the bank employees, how to do the inspections. Mm-hmm. And they take these reports and put them in there as part of their enhanced due diligence. Uh, if they score in the 90s, that's good to great compliance. Wonderful. Um, you know, keep going. If they score in the 80s, that's low to medium closure risk. Um, and so we have to have some corrective actions. If they score in the 70s or lower, uh, we recommend either termination SAR Ooh. or they go on a um, a path to compliance, we call it. And so well, they- I like how you give them that warning. But let's uh, let's unpack this whole SARS thing for our audience a little bit, simply because it's quite inside baseball when you get to it. Uh, right. The SARS stands for, and I believe you mentioned it earlier, suspicious activity refor- reports. And these things are triggered in the banking industry when certain things happen uh, regarding the account. Uh, the most famous one is usually the $10,000 cash transaction. Uh, that one's the most commonly known, but uh, in 2014, I believe, uh, that's when FinCEN, which is a branch of treasury, issued this guidance and they defined three new types of SARS. They just made them up mm-hmm. and they were all related to cannabis. And I believe it was, and you're, you probably have a better depth of understanding with them. So correct me when I'm wrong. You have the marijuana priority SAR, the marijuana termination SAR, which you just man- mentioned, and one more. What is that? Uh, it's a great one. Uh, I uh, So, yeah, it's, it's basically the, the first one, the one that you report, like, as soon as it's been rep- approved, pretty much. Uh, yeah. And so I call it the initiation SAR, but I don't think that's the original, that's the name of it, right? So you have initiation SAR, yeah, and then you have the termination Right. So, yeah, there's three. Levels. There's three because like there's the, the initiation and then you had a grading system. So like you have like 90s grade, but then once you get to 70 or 80, you know, kind of like how it is in school, it almost seems like you use that same numeric system. But uh, uh, there is this intermediate SAR where you think something's suspicious. And so, well, it's already a suspicious activity report, but you think that there's something amiss in the actual uh, account itself. So you have this second one and how quickly after the second one do you send the termination one? Oh, and that has been uh, something that when I was writing or trying to research about, I didn't really have necessarily a rubric for it, but I wasn't making a piece of software. You know, I was just advising uh, bank clients as to what the law is. I like what you've done there. Right, right. And so, yeah, I mean, we do the um, initiation, SAR, as I call it, or basically the identification um, that it is a cannabis business. Um, and so, yeah, going through that whole process to make sure that that's there. Um, and then we introduce our bank uh, and credit union partners to a secure cash management provider um, who can pick up the cash at these facilities and then deposit that at the Fed um, mm-hmm. through that process. Right. And so um, basically goes through a clearing process um, and then it would be populated into the, uh, the account holder within you know 24 to 48 hours uh, mm-hmm. sooner. Uh, depending on that. And then, so we want to make sure that that process is there because security is obviously important in public safety. Um, And then step five is ongoing due diligence and compliance training. So what we do is we do an effective CIP, which is customer identification program, uh, KYC, which is know your customer, and then EDD, which is enhanced due diligence. And so our program with the training up front and this five-step program is essentially what a bank would need to go in there 
And then we also inspect banks that are already currently banking cannabis um, right. to do gap analysis for them. And then I also support our banking clients if they have regulatory reviews by NCUA or, uh, you know, another regulatory agency. I will go in there and support our banking partners to make sure that um, it's understood. The problem that the bank ran into, and again, I'm not going to mention any names, but here in Colorado that had to close down and they scaled too fast during their regulatory inspection, which I was a fly on the wall. uh, They scaled too fast. They went over the 10% threshold for high-risk deposits and they couldn't describe or explain to the regulators what they were what they were doing and what a cannabis right. business was. And so they went straight into inventory and a few things like that that the regulators didn't understand. And so they confused the regulators and the regulators, if they want, you know, if we're going to side on the air of caution, right? So, yes, they grew too fast at all that. And that bank here in Colorado had to shut down its program. And I think it's happened in Illinois and a couple other markets. And again, we don't mention names. Uh, but some of these folks that um, have jumped on a mountain and said, hey, we're banking cannabis. Everybody look at us. Look at us. Um, those folks get shut down very quickly. Uh, the ones that are quiet, do the process that you need to do to be compliant. Mm-hmm. What you're doing is prepping the bank for their regulatory review. Yeah. And like yeah, I'm looking at these depository, uh, the numbers that are published by FinCEN, you can actually see it kind of like tick down sometimes. So you can see that Right. The number of banks that are lending and the number of SARS uh, that are out there, the reported ones. And so one of the cool things about them publishing this information is that you do know or have a general idea of how many banks and how many businesses are actually out there with accounts that are in the cannabis industry. And you can see it like grow. Um, and with these charts, they are a little dated. They only go through March of 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, have you seen any growth on those numbers? I mean, are, are, are is your business growing? Uh, yes. And so um, we are currently working with multiple states um, and then also some of our partners in Canada uh, and then also in the Caribbean and other markets uh, without getting too detailed. But um, yes, it, this you have to have a solution for it in the United States. Uh, right. California is the best example. So if you take Colorado times four, mm-hmm. um, right? And Colorado does $1.4, $1.5 billion a year. But I mean, California is going to dwarf that and you're going to have all that cash on the street. Right. You're going to have a dispensary leaving at night with all that cash from the day. Or right. the- is, yeah, that's, that's, then it gets how many, how many armed guards do you need? And then how many of those? Um, yeah, it's not just the armed guards, the big old trucks that they drive with them. Right. And, and California is a little bit more aggressive market as far as, um, you know, things that happen. But um, and here in Colorado and, you know, we have clients that have break ins and theft. And we had a, one client that seventy five thousand dollars just disappeared from the safe. Um, and so things like that. It's just gone. I mean, like, can you imagine the uh, that doesn't happen when it's in a bank? It's like it would have the seventy five grand when it, it, it can happen. But when somebody steals from a bank there's a paper trail. There's lines in the sand about where it went when it's just 75 grand in a safe. Now it ain't there no more. Right. And then at the end of the day, when they went back and looked at the video, it was an unassuming bud tender, um, an Indian woman. And she walked out, which walked out, put it into her purse and stacks of it and walked right out, got in her car and drove away. And these places are, you know, like Fort Knox because they have so many cameras and there can't be any blind spots or anything like that. And these, and these are those those camera setups. Those are all in the actual. Well, if not in the uh, statute, they would be in the regulations. Which, of course, uh, just as quick refresher as to how laws work. Again, they're passed, they're statutes, but then they're drafted into rules by the executive that's carrying it out. So by the end, you have literally hundreds of pages, as you had discussed. Right. I know absolutely. And so what we found, uh, specifically in Maryland, and this is a Maryland study. Uh, that we've done with our data. And uh, really, we're sitting on a mountain of data. It, the data we have is uh, very impressive. And um, I, I get to play with it. I'm pretty, pretty much one of the only people uh, that get to do it. But um, we we provide data and reports and all that stuff to our clients. We provide top five lists. Here's where you know the top five places where manufacturers fail um, and things mm-hmm. of that nature. But when we looked at the bank businesses versus the non-banked businesses early on when we were doing inspections in Maryland, the bank businesses already had to go through the enhanced due diligence program of the bank. 
And so the bank forced a higher level of compliance for the marijuana li- or the cannabis licenses um, because of the vetting process. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, just, just looking at that, you know, I mean, that's uh, it, it's it, you're more compliant business. It's better regulation. I could see in the future this being drafted into the actual laws themselves, like all licenses need a bank account. And so if there's, you know, because the Cannabis Banking Act that just got uh, introduced into the Illinois uh, state legislature, what if that had some type of rider or what if they they put it in the actual legalization bill that says uh, it's just a requirement that uh, all cannabis businesses must apply to get a bank account. And if they do not obtain one, you know, uh, why? You know, so maybe they're almost trying to force the termination SAR to really, really weed out the uh, non-compliant players. Right. Um, exactly. Because if, if I'm a cannabis operator, I'm a dispensary and I'm an all cash business because I don't have a bank account. Um, I can still, as an IRS, walk up and look at their sales and yeah. anything that's over $10,000. Did they do a currency transaction report form 8300? No. BTR 83. What was that? 8300? Yeah, Form 8300, which is a currency transaction reports. Anything over $10,000 in cash. And so if I sold you my car for $15,000 in cash, we need to do it. All right. Now, uh, what, because I mean, as you have talked about, you've been in business now. This is your fifth year. You've done hundreds of these. How many of these CTRs have you seen? Very uh, few. Uh, So even in this type of large multi-billion dollar growing uh, business, it's all in cash of cannabis, there still aren't all that many uh, above $10,000 transactions. It's the problem. I mean, it's, it, there's, there's, it's massive. Here in Colorado, there's still, uh, there's many, I would say 60, 70% of the industry here in Colorado is banked. Is banked. Yes. Um, but you still have to pay in cash. Uh, no, exactly. You have to pay in cash and you can't use credit cards here. Uh, they're using credit cards in Nevada, but Nevada is even more wild, wild west than uh, other markets. I've heard that they're also using credit cards in Oregon. And the way that they're doing it is they aren't really credit cards. They're set, setting up like their own personal ATMs. And then uh, so it's not because like with the credit cards, they need like a four digit code. that's right. like a flower shop or something. And so you can just lie. And I'm not I'm not advocating that and just saying that in theory, you could do it um, right. lie and say that you have a, you're a flower shop, which is, you know, kind of mildly, ironically amusing if you are a, a dispensary uh, because you're selling flowers. But at the same time, uh, with an ATM transaction, there was like you don't need that four digit code. You're just getting cash. And so they would set up this cash free ATM. And that's, I think, how they're doing it. But I've never uh, purchased cannabis legally with a credit card. Uh, yeah. So um, in in markets, they're doing um, we recommend, obviously, when we do inspections, uh, do you have an ATM? Yes. And then usually there's some type of posting on the ATM that they can't use electronic benefits. Right. So there's no state benefits and and things of that nature. But um, some of these owners want to own their ATM. And again, don't do that. Um, and then our, why would you not want to own your own ATM? I, uh, I, I think there's probably an explanation for that one. You're going into there and I'm pulling out money on my credit card. So technically I'm using a credit card uh, to pull out cash that you own. And then is that part of the cannabis operation? Right. And so, um, and then again, we're not, we're not doing credit cards in the cannabis industry. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we recommend, um, and then also for the ATM and the merchant services provider, did they put the correct code on there? Did they identify you as a cannabis operation or are you, are you a power washing business? And so uh, some of the things that we see out there as far as compliance, those are the things that we're checking because uh, it's toxic things like that, that can come up and, 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 and hit a program that's really trying to do what it needs to do, which is protect public safety, right? That's that's really the reason why we have these regulations. And I think it is uh, mildly amusing that we've taken all these great steps and entrepreneurs like yourself have had to invent uh, pieces of software to track all this stuff. And then yet uh, it's so flipping easy to get opioids, uh, or at least it has been for the past 20 years. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. I can go to my doctor and he would double my prescription for opioids and I wouldn't even ask for it. And then if he writes so many prescriptions, he gets a free cruise with his wife. Uh, the whole system is is baked in a bad way, but and then yeah, and then the, the, they don't want cannabis legalization. I'm shocked, just absolutely shocked. 
Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. Uh, and they're not going to go for it. But I mean, if we do look at the CBD process, and I don't want to get too on the... Uh, oh, that's co- one of the cool things. I mean, and that's, that's one of the aspects of my uh, cannabis uh, you know, legal practice that is starting to per- uh, percolate now simply because of the uh, farm bill with the, the hemp bill that came through that Donald Trump signed in December. And then also, uh, this is Illinois' first year of having uh, industrial hemp. And we're just waiting. And I, I, I don't have anything set up to scrape the Department of Agriculture's site. I just check it once a week and uh, still waiting for that time that I'll see it and be like, wow, now they are actually taking applications for hemp farming. So the, that, that's a big thing. And are, is, does your software have any application for that? Or are there just different regulations that that has to comply with? It's just a, it's a different code set, right? And so uh, hemp, hemp might be 80 pages in Colorado versus uh, uh, cannabis, if you will, is, you know, 250 pages at the medical or 280 pages at the rec level, uh, recreational or adult use. And so, um, no, absolutely. And so it's the same thing. Our software could be used to go in and do an brew- uh, inspection for a brewery, microbrewery, right? It's the same so where did you get this idea then? If it looks like this software is not unique for the cannabis industry, it's basically any type of uh, highly regulated industry like brewery or uh, gaming. Is that another one of the industries that these types of software can uh, uh, bring value? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, um, obviously the more regulatory code, the better. And then if we look at cannabis comparatively, uh, cannabis is, is coming out with a lot of regulatory code because People are copying what Colorado has done. Colorado produced a lot of it, uh, regulatory code, really yeah. on, on these businesses and stuff like that. And, and they, even though they can't really monitor it, if they, you know, if at what they do, um, all these states are mimicking. Maryland mimicked Colorado. Right. Um, California is mimicking it to a point. This is yeah. This is something that I'll, I talk about sometimes. It's one of the less uh, you know interest. Well, it's interesting to me, but I'm. Uh, uh, I'm a bank attorney and I'm familiar with the Uniform Commercial Code and with what Colorado has done by being the first there and how a lot of these laws works is that you have these things called model codes uh, because cannabis law is so new that there really isn't a, a vibrant, um, you know, there's the American Bar Association, right? So they might not even have a section group. I know that the Illinois State Bar Association that I'm involved in uh, doesn't have a section group uh, on cannabis law, for example. But as you have all these regulations that come down, you have the opportunity to have uh, one of those model codes. And there's all sorts of model codes in all sorts of various areas of law, whether it's trust in estates or family or uh, the uniform commercial code for, you know, commerce. Right. Pretty cool, man. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, we're purpose built really for cannabis because of that's where I've focused. Um, and then if we well, look that's at where the market was, I mean, you, yeah. there wasn't one, there wasn't a player. So you could uh, help people fix this problem. And I'm sure that some of your clients, uh, you know, your, your bank clients, especially, they would not have taken those customers without a piece of software, like uh, what you're offering. It, I mean, it, it is a lot of, um, the unknown. They don't know if they can do it. We want to do it because it's a viable revenue thing. And then we do have uh, bandwidth in our high risk deposits to basically take these on mm-hmm. uh, and the money involved. I mean, some of these businesses in Maryland are looking, you know, if they're going to switch bank accounts from one of these banks to the other one or two, um, you know, they're looking at moving 20 or $30 million. And yep. so the deposit levels and everything like that, that we're talking about, because, these businesses are, uh, you know, hoarding cash, if you will, if they do have operational bank accounts where they can actually park it. Well, uh, that, that goes to their capital requirements then for the bank. So what right. kind of bank wouldn't want an extra $20 million sitting in an account at one of its, uh, you know, branches? I mean, it just makes sense. Right. And are you going to be late to the party or are you going to jump in now? Well, you're going to you're going to try to be safe and sound in your banking principles and practices. And so one of the things about the party that you're trying to you're trying not to be an underage drinker at the party and or go to a party for underage drinking. And I think we're really getting to the time of the legalization um, horizon where it looks like, okay, they aren't underage drinking. Well, they might be underage drinking, but they aren't at an underage drinking party. They've snuck into a bar somewhere. just because it's becoming more uh, like how many states right now have medical cannabis? I think it's like 44, isn't it? 
I wanted to say it was 30s, um, somewhere yeah. in the in low 30s. From my understanding, once it gets above 34, 35, medical state, that's going to force some type of vote. Um, I mean, I would see yeah. them uh, potentially descheduling on the medical side, but not the rec side if that would happen. But again, we're that so would be, that, that 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 would be weird in the sense that you know how can you deschedule this and reschedule uh, you. Uh, Oh man, that might open up a constitutional challenge because then you are literally having two separate regulations for the same thing. You know, it's the same cannabis. And I get the regulation, which is you're regulating the same cannabis two different ways. If it's less than 0.3%, you're in hemp land. But suddenly, magically, if you take the CBD flower that you grew and you process it into an oil, and because you've concentrated it, this, the THC profile is now at 1%. Suddenly, it is now cannabis, and it is a Schedule One substance. Right. I mean, then you're uh, – yeah, there's a whole thing you have to deal with there. And so I, as far as figuring out what's going to happen, um, we know that the banks that are doing this correctly um, are not having an issue, um, and the banks that aren't um, waving the flag to say, look at us, look at us. Every bank that has went out and, and – put an article out in marijuana business daily um, hasn't succeeded. And then there are a lot of players out there that say, we can get you a merchant services account. We can get you an operational bank account. Mm. But where does the EIN live? Where, I mean, so, and then again, most of the programs, we, we get calls every week uh, from financial institutions, I'll say. Right. And, um, we turn down probably 80% of the calls because uh, they're not a legitimate bank or a credit union. Hmm. Um, and so they're just a fly-by-night operator that has this magical solution that's not compliant. Uh, you know, I'm, you're in a software industry, and there's a lot of hucksterism in tech. But right. um, what about the level of hucksterism in the cannabis industry? Which one has more you know, phony baloneyness, cannabis or tech? Um. You know, yeah, I mean, this is the internet in 1996, yeah. basically what we're going through. Wow, um, so like the pets.com is just waiting to happen. <laughs> um, it is. And then the problem we have now in the wild, wild west is that these folks are not as concerned on compliance as they need to be. Right. Um, and they're, And so what they're doing is essentially pushing compliance off until they get in trouble um, right. or they sell their business. And then there's a flurry of investment activities in the, I call them the big five that are out there purchasing. And again, I'm not going to mention names, but um, on a second. let's go. Acreage holding. Med, yeah. Med, 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 um, uh, let's, uh, who else was in a GTI might be in one of them. Uh, I'm just guessing just from the uh, uh, Barron's article that I read last week. Uh, and they did a pretty good profile. And a lot of these companies are closely held and none of them are publicly listed. So imagine if, because we have the dot-com bubble. Right. Those those companies, they could just list and they could just go to the market and start trading stocks with with cannabis. We even have like, you know, more of the cork in the bottle that you're shaking up syndrome in the sense that they can't list that it's, it's illegal. Like they would need to change the law and then there would just be this mad rush to Wall Street to get listed on there. And I, I just. I am kind of excited to watch the uh, the pump and dump uh, or the pop and drop of uh, legal cannabis, but I'm not sure what year it'll be. I mean, what I'm seeing, and I'll just, I'll just be honest, is um, I'm seeing these large ins- these large players uh, moving out there to acquire licenses, and it's a game. I have 80 licenses. We have 99. We have 112. And mm-hmm. so if we look at that, how many of those have c- proper IRS code compliance with CTRs, 280E compliance, and then have actually done their taxes correctly since inception? Right. We look right. At- I mean, it almost sounds like you just exactly. have invented this as a number that you're going to use to uh, pump your investors about like why you should buy our stock and not their stock. It's like daily active users or just some, or like there's so many people in uh, we have this many accounts at this particular tech company and therefore we value ourselves at this. Mm-hmm. And 25% of my underlying assets or licenses um, are toxic from an IRS perspective or require a lot of rework and compliance work. And so that lowers the value to nothing. Um, as we like to say, I mean, if you score in the 90s, you can trade at two to five times EBITDA. 
if you score in the 80s, maybe one to two times EBITDA less debt. And then if you score in the 70s, don't invest in these guys because they're too expensive. It's going to cost you too much money to write the ship. Yeah, you kind of want to be like Tesla would use this a lot. They're consumer reports almost. You see, like based on the consumer report quality index for a car or whatever the heck it is, uh, then you use that as a metric or something to value future sales or the stock price. And so you could uh, or Cigar Aficionado magazine or Wine Spectator by having this rating system that you have you're able to more or less bless the uh, offering or the, the, the company that has that rating. Right. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool, man. Uh, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, so yeah, the fastest way to get in touch with us is to give us a call or text our main number, which is 855-582-9700 mm-hmm. uh, or send an email uh, to info at adherence-corp.com, which is the same as our URL. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's pretty much the fastest way to get a hold of us. Um, and then we're currently working on our schedule for 2019. Um, we have our enterprise practice, which is basically we serve some of the largest cannabis enterprises in the world. Cool. Uh, and then we have a financial services practice, which we've been talking about in detail today. And then we also have our government services practice, which, um, as I said, cities, counties, um, and regulatory agencies uh, use our software for code enforcement. And so we're training them, uh, specifically California right now. We've got multiple contracts, but we're training them on how to go out and deal with this because in in some markets, um, Nevada, et cetera, they're learning from the industry. Mm-hmm. That's not really the proper way to be a regulator. So unless you're actively regulating and going in and doing your job, um, then you're going to get in trouble. And then that, I mean, that's why these things happen. And so, um, yeah, we have a lot of traction right now. We're expanding. Um, and then we're looking for expansion partners in various markets as well. And so, um, it's exciting times. That's great, man. Well, thank you so much. I mean, it's, it's been an hour. I think uh, we got a lot of information in that hour, almost like fire hose stuff, but I think it's a, a wonderful piece of software. And thank you very much for stopping by to chat with us on cannabis legalization news. All right. Well, thank you, sir. Have a beautiful day.